Today we're going to be in Luke 24. And again, happy Mother's Day. Today we have a little bit of a mixed bag. We're going to talk about why we should recognize mothers. And we're also going to finish Luke's Gospel today. And then next Sunday we'll be starting a new book, the book of Acts, which is Luke's second work. There's something very special about a relationship between a mother and a child, which is very different than a father's relationship. God ingrained moms with more of a nurturing ability that differs from what a father brings to the table. I see the difference between how my wife cares for my son and how I care for my son. There's definitely a difference, and they're both needed. But mom shouldn't be thanked only once a year, and I said that when I prayed uh, today. I see my wife round the clock serving my son. She picks out his clothes in the morning, she makes his breakfast, she cleans him. She even spikes his hair before he goes to school so he'll look cool, right? But obviously when my wife goes away, like let's say a retreat, um, let's say Josiah is, well, not as well kempt when I, when I have him for a few days. But we read the Bible and we play a lot, so kind of make up for it. Sometimes my wife will call me at night from where she is and ask me questions like, did he brush his teeth? Did he wash his face and hands? Did you feed him? <laughs> did he put his pajamas on? And sometimes, if I ha- you know, have to answer honestly, right, I'm a pastor. Sometimes the answer is, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes it's no. For all I know, he could have a dirty face, dirty teeth, and be in bed with his underwear on. You know what I'm saying? Now, it doesn't mean you have to call dietists on me. It just means that I provide other things, right? And I don't have as much detail, every detail, as my German wife does. But when I was a kid, and it's, it's good, it's all good. When I was a kid, my mom also paid a lot of attention to my sister and I. Uh, she, one thing I remember was she would pack our lunch, we'd have our lunchbox, we'd have a sandwich, a snack, a juice. And the thing I always remember was my mom every day wrote a personalized note on our napkin. She, she drew a picture and she would write some cute thing and every day my sister and I would open up our lunch, it was personalized and it was different. And you know what? I looked forward to those notes and those drawings because uh, I had a hard time socializing uh, when I was a kid, believe it or not. But my mom loved me no matter what I did and she helped me to become a better person. And even today when she pesters me and she still pesters me, I know it's because she loves me and she wants me to follow her wisdom so that I I will prosper. I also had the good fortune to preside over my grandmother's funeral uh, last Wednesday, as as I uh, said before. And one of the greatest qualities that my grandmother possessed was that of a servant. My grandmother was a great servant. No matter how big the family grew, she was always always there to sew, to cook, to tell stories, to clean, whatever it needed to be done to bless the family. It was her honor to serve us. And I think probably as kids we took that for granted, sort of like my son does with my wife. But grandmas are very especially good at serving. Her generation wasn't the me generation. They were selfless, always willing to you know, do what it took. I also give credit, as I you know, prayed before, to the younger moms who some moms have to take care of the kids on their own, uh, sacrificing their own freedoms and desires for their children's sake. And that's tough in our society because we're taught, think about it, you just turn on the news any day of the week and we're taught in our society that not to be anybody's servant, you know, to think about ourselves first, right? Servant really, being a servant is a dirty word in our society today. 
And it's certainly exemplified in young Hollywood, the vacuous lifestyle that some of these uh, young millionaires lead. But um, anyway, as far as that, that situation and that lifestyle, that's not a normal lifestyle. And if your kids are idolizing some of these people, certainly you should have a talk with them. And finally, I would say this, that the biggest thing why we should really honor moms is the whole childbirth thing. Come on, let's talk. I was there. I mean, I was there when my wife gave birth to my son. I mean, you don't get any more there than I was. And she pushed out a 10-pound baby boy. Now, the downside to that is whenever I experience any pain, you know where I'm going with this, it's always compared to childbirth. It's like the trump card. But you know what? It's, it's the truth. It's right. But whether you had children or you've taken care of someone else's child, I have the utmost respect for you. And the reality is that uh, some people, some people here didn't grow up with the best of moms. You know, some of you have mothers that uh, were really selfish and then didn't really care for you as much. But you know what? When, you, when it comes to your own children, just, I, I would just encourage you to overcome and just overcome and give your child what you didn't get when you were younger. But at this time, I'd like to ask if there's anybody who's a mom, a grandmom, a foster mom, has been a mom in any capacity, at this point in time, I would ask you to stand. I'd like to pray for you. Don't be shy. Father, we come before you now, Lord, and you see these women, Lord, who you've empowered to have children, Lord, and to bless people, Lord, and to uh, put aside their own lives, Lord, to nurture, to care for, to love, and to really never be separated from their children, Lord. We just, uh, we just go before you now, Lord, and, and, you know, we honor moms once a year, but it shouldn't be so. I pray that we, the rest of us, would have more respect, Lord, and have more, um, you know, more understanding and more uh, you know, honor, give to, give to these ladies who've made this great sacrifice, Lord. I know that many of the rewards that they've uh, endured or many of the uh, service that they've endured here, their rewards will be in heaven, Lord. But I just pray that you would help us all to be thankful for the service that they've given to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you can be seated. Okay, last Sunday we spoke of the events surrounding the resurrection. Today we're going to finish the last chapter of Luke, and next Sunday we'll be starting the book of Acts, which is contiguous to Luke, so we'll see that it flows the end of Luke to the beginning of Acts. We'll just see it's it's one real thought there. On a personal note, um, I'm a little sad. I'm a little sentimental about Luke, um, and the reason is because I started my life as a pastor in the book of Luke. We've been in the book of Luke for about a year and a half, and... Some people think that it was a long time, but I've checked with other pastors, and they said that's about right for for a gospel. So maybe I'm a little attached to Luke, sort of like a child would be attached to his woobie or his binky, but you know. And I was absent last Sunday, not because I didn't want to finish Luke, but really there was something wrong with me. Um, Some of you might say there's normally something wrong with me. But in a serious note, teaching from a gospel will change your life and should change your life. I know I've changed, and I know our fellowship has changed as well. I certainly hope that marriages have changed, that individuals have changed, and that all your relationships have changed by going through the gospel in its entirety. 
And I want to say this, if God's word hasn't changed you, you're not paying attention. You're not paying attention. You're doing the church social thing, and I don't mind telling you that. As we go through the book of Acts, we're also going to see that our thinking of what church is supposed to be will be challenged. Our thoughts will be challenged as we go through Acts. We have a, 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 a modernistic view of what we think church should be. But Acts is going to help us to understand the priorities in what church is supposed to be. If you're taking notes, I'm just going to run through quickly um, some of the Jesus' post-resurrection appearances in chronological order before we actually read chapter 24. Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene early Sunday, and that's referenced in Mark 16, 9 through 10. To the other women he appeared also early Sunday, Matthew 28, 9 through 10. And also to the two on the road to Emmaus, sometime Sunday, which we read two Sundays ago, and we covered that in Luke uh, chapter 24, 13 through 32. He appeared to Peter, and we're going to see that today, sometime Sunday, Luke 24, 34, and to the disciples sometime Sunday night, Luke 24, 36, and John 20, 19. To the 11 a week later with Thomas present, uh, John 20th, John 20, 26 through 31, and to the seven at the Sea of Galilee, John 21. Then to the eleven in Galilee, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and to the 500 and to James, unknown when, this is reflected in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks about. And then finally the ascension, Acts chapter 1 and Mark 16. And then sometime later, he appeared to Paul. And that would be covered, we'll cover that in Acts chapter 9. A few things to note. The one thing is, uh, Jesus cast out seven demons from Mary Magdalene. And we see that she seemed to have a special appreciation for Jesus. And she was undeterred from following Jesus. A special appreciation. What have you been forgiven for? Think about it. Don't say it out loud, but just think about it, what you've been forgiven of. I know what I've been forgiven of. The question is, do we really have that appreciation? To whom much is forgiven, the Bible says, the same loves much. I know some maybe casual Christians that would probably scatter if the persecution came here like it did in Rome. I also know Christians that have been forgiven much and would be immovable if the, per if the persecution came here. An attitude of, bring it on. Hit me with whatever you got, but I'm not denying my Lord and Savior. The other thing is, does anyone know why Jesus spent 40 days on earth between his resurrection and his ascension? What was his purpose? Did he have to go and read the purpose-driven life to find out? Was 40 days of purpose? No. And why would there be any gap at all between this period of time, let alone 40 days? Well, at this point, it seems that the opposition to Christianity was appeased with Christ's crucifixion. However, because of the resurrection, we see the disciples become revived in their spirit and they start preaching Jesus again. And it starts to catch the attention of the religious leaders. Wait a minute, we just killed them on the cross. What's going on here? So the persecution starts up again and it gives way to the Roman persecution. So Jesus had to spend those 40 days reinforcing a few things, three things. Number one, that he actually did rise from the dead and that he had to gather witnesses. Understand 
what's going to happen in the future, knowing what's going to happen in the future, he needs to have witnesses to the resurrection. That's the first thing. The second thing is he needs to reinforce the timelessness of God's word. And we see this all throughout the scripture, whether it's the Emmaus Road or the Great Commission or any of these events all throughout Jesus' ministry, he has to say, hey, guys, remember what the scriptures say about the Messiah, about, you know, everything that comes after that. And certainly we need to do that today. There's too many churches that preach a message that is a non-offensive message that makes everybody feel good and walk out feeling great, but they didn't hit him with the word of God. The third thing that needed to be done was he had to commission them to preach the message of salvation. And we're going to talk about that today. As, as his followers, we need to continue that commission to preach the message of salvation. And we'll see what our responsibilities are as we get further into the text. Starting with verse 30, I'm sorry, yes, verse 33 in Luke 24. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. So where we left off was the resurrection or the resurrected Christ encounter with the two disciples leaving Jerusalem and headed, heading to Emmaus, okay, discouraged. But the two become so overjoyed with their conversation with Jesus and he reveals himself to them that they come back from Emmaus back to Jerusalem. And in verse 36 through 37, we see Jesus' resurrected body now has different properties. And I'll go through some of the properties that his glorified body has that ours don't have. Um, the first thing was he was able to walk through walls. Because John 20:19 says that when the disciples were gathered together, the doors were shut. And boom, he appears in the midst of them. So he's able with his, with his glorified body to pass through walls and to you know, do these pretty amazing things. And that's why they were kind of frightened. You know, it was probably a shock that he just appeared to them. The other thing is he has a glorified body, but he has flesh and bones, as we'll see. In verse 31, uh, also he still had holes in his wrists and his feet and his chest. That's pretty amazing. Some speculate that his glorified body didn't have blood because he uh, spilled his blood on the cross as the, you know, the remission of sin going back to uh, Leviticus 17:11. So the glorified bodies don't have blood. Now I'm not 100% sure on that, but that's very interesting. And the last thing is he could eat. Uh, don't ask me how he could do this, but his glorified body he could eat. We saw this with the Emmaus uh, disciples, and we also see it here. And in Revelation 19, the Bible says that when we're partaking of the marriage supper of the Lamb, in our glorified bodies we'll also be eating. I really like that. That's, that's a cool thing. 
But 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. There's two glories. It's two types of bodies. When he talks about the resurrection, you have the terrestrial of the earth and the celestial of the spiritual realm. Okay? The terrestrial body is limited to earth. Okay? You know, we, we talked scientifically about how God designed our bodies for this particular planet. The celestial body doesn't seem to have any, any limits. And people have speculated. They say, well, how could he have flesh and bones and walk through walls? How could he pass through that wall? But he has flesh and bones. And again, it's all speculation, but I've heard people talk about the atoms in the body, and you have your, your protons and, and your neutrons that are tightly bound in the nucleus, and then you have your electrons whizzing around, and the protons should really separate because they should repel each other, but because of strong nuclear force, they're held together, and because of that space, he could actually pass through the medians and whatever. There's like a lot of space in our bodies. Now, I don't know if that's true either, but it's interesting conjecture, or God could just make our bodies different. Maybe we won't have atoms when we have our glorified bodies. I don't know. And you just got to be careful. You know, there's a lot of things we can play with, but there's just some things we don't know. But Jesus says peace. Now, this is interesting because peace to his followers, right? You read some accounts of Christians tortured for their belief system, some to death, many to death in this time period after Jesus ascended, and you wonder, what is he talking about? Last Sunday, if you were here, Pastor Anthony spoke about the three Christians in Turkey that were tortured to death for three hours. And he told me exactly what happened, but he didn't share the gory details with you. And you wonder, well, what's the peace thing? I don't get it. You you would think that these guys would be out of their minds going through this. Two types of peace. Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What that means is the first step is there's no more war with God. There's a ceasefire between mankind and God when we believe in Jesus Christ. And you may say, well, I'm not at war with God, not me. But the Bible says that by nature we're children of wrath and we're sons of the devil until we're born again of the Spirit. The second type of peace is Philippians 4, 6 through 7. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Okay, we're getting somewhere now. This is the peace in the midst of circumstances. Uh, We're ordering, we ordered a copy of, and believe we, we have it, Fox's Book of Martyrs for the office. And it talks about all these accounts of these Christians, starting with the first century, all throughout the current age, of who've been persecuted, burned at the stake, put in the Colosseums. All these horrible things happened to them, and they had peace. Some of them were singing while they were burning at the stake. And you say, well, how the heck could that happen? Well, it's the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. That's why it surpasses all understanding, because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to our understanding. But... The peace that Christ gives us, number one, we have peace with God, and number two, we have peace throughout our circumstances. You see? Verse 38. This is interesting. We get more insight into his flesh and into his body. He says, Why are you troubled and why why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Peter tells us in his works that he's, he also uh, handled Jesus. So Jesus was handled by these guys, by Thomas, by his followers. 
they probably marveled as they were putting their fingers in the wounds, right? But his body, well, it says flesh and bones. The word for bones is literally bones. The word is in the Greek is astea, which is where we get osteoporosis and osseous from. It means bones. Bones means bones. He had bones. And John 20, 24 through 31, it gives you more of an insight of the detail of especially what happened with Thomas putting his fingers through the wounds. And then in John 20, 28, now follow this. Thomas puts his finger through the wounds and through his side. And Thomas looks at Jesus and says, That's what he said. But what it means in English is my Lord and my God. Now, this is very significant, very significant, because why am I going to go a little bit into Greek grammar? Because probably when some of you go home, if you live in a more populated area, you're going to have somebody knock on your door on a Sunday afternoon and say, hi, we'd like to talk to you about Jesus Christ. We're Christians. And the Jehovah Witnesses will come in and say, they'll tell you one thing, that Jesus wasn't God, never claimed to be God, and nobody ever claimed him to be God. Well, it's not true. According to the the rules of Greek grammar, the word chi, which means and, that separates my Lord and my God, becomes an equal sign now. It's called the, if if you want it later, I'll write it down for you. It's called the Granville Sharps Rule of Greek Grammar. And there's three criteria that have to be met. And if those three criteria are met, the word and becomes an equal sign. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm sorry, what Thomas is saying is, he looks at Jesus, he puts his fingers, he's convinced, and he looks at Jesus and he says, My Lord and my God, like, you did it. You rose from the dead. I will worship you as God. I'm not going to doubt anymore. You see? So when you go into the original languages, you really get, it really opens up a greater understanding to what you're looking at. He's equating Jesus with God. Verse 41. It says, but while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? They give him something to eat and he eats it. Further establishing that he was real and tangible, he eats again. We saw this on the, with, with the disciples on the Emmaus Road, and we see it again here. Verse 44. Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name in all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. We saw it several times last Sunday, and we're seeing it again. He's reinforcing the word of God and reinforcing, giving them their commission. In verse 44, he expounds the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. He did it on the Emmaus Road. He always did that. He went from the Old Testament all the way through it and explained to them everything about the Messiah. At my grandmother's funeral uh, Wednesday, after the eulogy, um, I gave the gospel message, because that's what I do. People need to hear the gospel. And I started out by saying, you might think that this is inappropriate because it's to commemorate my grandmother, but it couldn't be more appropriate. I said, you you guys go on vacation, you take luggage on the plane. Who goes on vacation doesn't take luggage on the plane? You're just going to buy everything when you get there? You prepare your 401ks, your retirement, your kids' college funds. How many of you prepare for death, which, which you can't, it doesn't give you an appointment. 
You can get an appointment to go on a plane. You know when your kid's going to graduate. You know these things. How many people don't prepare for death? And I don't mean a funeral arrangement. I mean their eternal security. And then I went. I started with the fall of man, the sacrificial system, uh, the law of Moses, the messianic prophecies, all the way up to the redemption of man. It wasn't 40 minutes. It only took me a few minutes to do it. I made the concise version. But, but there was relatives who were non-believing Jewish people, and they actually came up to me afterwards, and they appreciated it because I, I gave them the Old Testament. I gave them something that they could refer to, and I prayed that they would think about that, think about those words and let them sink into their heart. Verse 47, he says that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. Repentance and remission of sins. You know, they go together. They go together. Unfortunately, too many Christians believe repentance died with John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist said that, the whole repentance thing. No, Jesus said it too. A friend of mine uh, talked to me about uh, a larger church that he came from that preached the non-offensive, very light and airy Christian message. Okay, And he told me that on Sundays it was so in, um, innocuous or, or light that he could be sitting next to somebody who was a polytheist, believed in many gods, listen to the whole service, come there for months, and go home and not feel convicted about his beliefs and take Jesus and put him as an idol with the rest of his little gods. Okay, this is what they do in Sunday service. You have to repent. You know, you, you have to preach a message that caused somebody to change directions. And what do I mean by that? Repent, to turn around, to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to follow you. And everything that I believe from, from this point back, I renounce. And I'm willing to open up my heart to what your word has to say. I confess my sins, I repent of my beliefs, and I want to follow your word. That's what it means, repent and believe. And Matthew 28:19 adds this. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, do anything, conversion by force. That's nowhere in the scripture. Unfortunately, there's a lot of blemishes in so-called church history with the conversions by force. That's not reflected in Jesus' life. What it means is you're giving something to somebody that's priceless, the pearl of great price, right? For free. It's something they couldn't buy, they couldn't earn, and you're, you're going to them and you're giving it to them here. The Bible says, freely you have received, freely give. And what better thing to give than eternal salvation, eternal security? It's not, it doesn't mean be seeker friendly. It doesn't mean to say only nice things to puff up the congregation. That's not what I'm here to do. What I see here, if these numbers stay for the next 10 years, that's fine. Uh, I'm not in the business to inflate the church population to say really sweet things so people come in and feel good about themselves. And there's going to be times that we, we say things. The love of God should make you feel great about yourself. I mean, there's, just, there's enough in here to, 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 to feel good. But there's also things in here that hopefully convict you and me. When I listen to my own messages, I get convicted. It's the weirdest thing, but it happens. So it, it ha we ha the word has to cause repentance, and sometimes repentance stings a little bit. If you sting a little bit, that's a good thing. And it doesn't mean to make converts and not follow up with them. 
Uh, Pastor Ray Comfort, he does a pretty neat circuit with Kirk Cameron, uh, the child actor star who became born again, and they debate atheists and stuff. And uh, apparently there's one coming up or just came up. I didn't get to see it yet. But uh, they do a pretty good job of, of explaining the existence of God. But Ray Comfort does a lot of follow-ups on some of the big crusades. And he finds out that the people who actually remain after these tens of thousands of people fill the stadium a few years later, it's, it's well low into the low single digits. And it's largely because they're getting milk. They're getting the milk. It's good. They're getting the gospel message. But nobody is getting these people, teaching them how to follow up, to get plugged in somewhere where they're going to grow in their faith. right? And in verse 48... He says that you are going to be witnesses of these things. Witnesses, primarily propagated. The gospel was primarily propagated by those that witnessed the resurrection. 49, it says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them, and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. These were his instructions. Hang out in the city until you get your marching orders. That's what he wanted them to do. Did they ask him for any, an itinerary? I don't know. But this is what he told them. Just wait until you're endued with power on high. Now, how, how many of you wish that God would kind of come to you once a year maybe, send a messenger, give you a scroll and say, okay, this, these are your bad points you've got to work on. He's like a report card, right? Once a year, angel comes, and then he gives you another scroll and says, this is what I want you to do. This is your itinerary, at least for the next five years. How many people would like that? Raise your hand. Wouldn't it be much easier? <laughs> I'd like that. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, I come, you know, 15 years as a police officer, I'm, I get used to taking orders. I could dig it. What, what do you need, Lord? Tell me what you need. I'll do it. Not a problem. There's, you're not going to get any arguments out of me. Just write it out on paper and, and, and I'll do it. But he doesn't do that. And you know what? Sometimes, sometimes I feel I'm praying and praying and praying. Sometimes I feel like I'm groping in the dark. Do you feel like that sometimes? I know you do because some of you have come up to me and said, I feel like that. Is God listening? And you wonder, well, why does God do that when I'm just willing to do whatever he wants me to do? Well, I think I have one of the reasons for it. Well, because when you're in that time and you're constantly praying morning, noon, and night, and you're in his word, and you're in fellowship, guess what? You're close to him, whether you re realize it or not. And when things go really good, and you're kind of off and running, and you're on your own, sometimes you left God in the dust. And you look back and you say, man, those hard times, I've never been so close to the Lord. So I think that's kind of cool how God works with us. He wants us to continue to seek him and to seek that fellowship with him. In verse 49, you see, uh, he, you see the promise of my father. He spoke about you know, the Holy Spirit, giving them the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see a lot of that in Acts. And in verse 51, okay, first he says peace. He, he establishes peace, and we talked about peace. Now in verse 51, he blesses them. If he blesses them, again, why did they suffer such horrible deaths? Except for John, but John was tortured before he died. Well, Psalm 23.3, which is read at many funerals, and, and I read this at my grandmother's funeral. 
The, the Psalm of the Good Shepherd, everybody knows. Many of you have memorized Psalm 23. But do you know what each line means? Just like the Our Father. We could all memorize the Our Father. But every line in there means something to God, to, between your relationship with him. Psalm 23.3 says this, He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What does that mean? He leads me in the paths of righteousness. I, I could choose to be on that path or not, but let's say I am for argument's sake. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What does that mean? That means that everything that I do, and when I'm on that path, and I'm on the righteous path, I glorify God. That's what we were designed to do. And again, look on television, go to the store. You would never believe that that was our, our purpose in life, to glorify God. You would almost think in our society, and I love this country, I'm very patriotic, but it's, things are not going well. You would almost think that we're here to glorify ourselves. We're led in the paths of righteousness to glorify God. That's our mission. That's what we're supposed to do. So, often, often, um, what was it, Anthony, Pastor Anthony, that story about the three Turkish Christians who were tortured to death, died a horrible death, and we would say, we're I get indignant, you know, but the, the wife was, I guess, on the news uh, through the media circuit. The wife of one of those Christian men said, I don't want revenge. I want people to see the love of Christ. She didn't speak with vitriol in her voice. She wasn't vilifying them. Um, she wasn't vociferous, all of these. But what she was was she was forgiving, okay? And she wanted people to see the, the, the forgiveness of Christ. And you know what? So many people were affected by this one wife's testimony that their death did glorify God. And it's easy for me to say it didn't happen to me or one of my relatives. Maybe it will. I don't know. And I'm not trying to, to lighten it because, but you know what? Those three brothers are in heaven and possibly because of their deaths, many of those Muslim people will come to faith in Christ because of the aftermath of their deaths. So we're here to glorify God. And it, it doesn't sit well with some of us, but that's the fact. That's the fact. And verse 53, he says, Amin, Amen. It's an expression of, expression of approval. It means, so be it. The Great Commission. Jesus expounded on and reinforced the scriptures to his followers. And we try to follow that same lead here. That's important. Expounding on the scriptures and reinforcing the scriptures. He commanded them and us to preach repentance and the remissions of sins. And we try to do that here also. And again, repentance. It's not always a nice subject to preach about, but it's necessary. It's vital. He commands us to make disciples of all the nations, of course, through peaceful means. We wouldn't support any missionary group otherwise, unless it was through the love of Christ. And you know what? Discipling the nations. We disciple through the pulpit. And we encourage personal discipleship in this fellowship. Now, the only question is, are we being obedient? Are these things reflected in your life? Is it reflected in my life? Some would say, well, that's a pastor's job. And I would say, really? Because no ecclesiastical officers were given at this time. Realize that. They were all equal. He spoke to them as his followers, right? That, those ecclesiastical officers, uh, officers came later. 
And I just want you to know how seriously we take the Great Commission here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields as we close in the book of Luke. We support the following ministries. Bibles for Troops, um, and, and also, I'm sorry, we support the following ministries, and through these ministries we've handed out uh, about a thousand Bibles so far. Bibles for Troops, Gospel for Asia, Voice of the Martyrs, the Gideons, the Trenton Ministry, the Prison Ministry, the Nursing Home Ministry, all the local outreaches, and my own personal stash that I give out, and some of the Bibles that some of you steal on Sunday mornings. <laughs> but we, no, that's cool. <laughs> but we've given out about a thousand Bibles, and you know what, to me, I was hoping it would be more. That's actually too little for me. We always want to commit to giving the Word of God to people. I just had my, um, my driveway resealed yesterday, and I gave out two more Bibles. It's just what I do. But, you know, I'm just, I'll tell you a funny story about stealing Bibles. And I don't, if somebody takes Bibles, I don't care. Take, all, take as many as you want. But at least tell us so we can reorder other ones. My dad had a shop some years back, and he had a, a, a shop Bible, right? And somebody took his Bible, and he got mad. So he got another Bible, and he took a stamper of the business name, and he stamped it all over, thinking they wouldn't take it again. Well, a few weeks go by, another person takes the stamped Bible. And he gets all mad and he goes, I can't believe somebody stole my Bible. I said, Dad, are you kidding me? How do you steal a Bible? I said, so let him steal it. Maybe he'll give some to his hoodlum friends and they'll get saved. I mean, come on. But stealing Bibles, I just, they just don't go together. And the other thing is um, we do support the various ministries to different parts of the world. We support ministries to India, to Africa, to Afghanistan, to Europe, to Asia, to Central America, and yes, local. Sometimes churches forget they have these, these you know, you've got to go to Sudan, you've got to go to here, you've got to go there, and we forget that there's people right down the block that don't know who Jesus is. So local is very important also. And I want to leave you, uh, before we close, with this one article from Voice of the Martyrs, uh, May 2007. He says this. It's a very interesting article. He says, in the New Testament, there are hundreds of words of prophecy and exhortation from Jesus and words of testimony from his followers demonstrating Christian witness before the authorities. They did not seek permission for this witness. They already had it from a higher authority. Is our battle to maintain a legal right to witness, stealthily replacing the divine exercise of sharing our testimony required of us by God? Christian testimony evangelization is not our right, it is our mandate. From God. This requirement from God can never be taken uh, away or given by man. Have we become so focused upon our rights and freedoms that we have forgotten we are captives of Christ? Any spiritual freedom we have must spring out of obedience to him, obedience exercised whether inside or outside of a court. The world wants to establish rights apart from God's authority no matter how many legal battles Christians fight. If we believe our rights come only from interpretations of laws, in the next few years we may not have the right to wear a Christian t-shirt, to leave a Bible on our desk, to hand out a Christian tract, or even show a Christian cartoon to neighborhood children in our home. And that's actually not too far-fetched. The uh, new Congress is, is drumming up some plans to seriously curtail witnessing of Christians, including what we can say in a house of God. So when they say, groups like the ACLU is, oh, we just don't want it in the public, they're lying to you. They're deceptive. They're trying to, to emasculate churches from the inside also. Um, 
last thing is, I remember how Richard Wombrand, Romanian pastor and founder of VOM, used to laugh about the legal circus regarding prayer in school, carrying your Bible, etc. He would encourage everyone with the simple statement, just bow your head and pray. Pastor Wombrand went to glory with a chest and back literally pitted with the scars of torture, signs of his willingness to obey, the, obey his Lord who required him to share the gospel. I just think that's very appropriate to end this because I don't know when we're going to go through a gospel again. I don't know um, when we're going to, as, after we finish Acts, how, you know, the Great Commission, when that's going to come up again. But you know what? I just think it was very appropriate for this message. Let's pray. Etc.